Welcome to the Dear Christianity Podcast. I'm your host, Dale Westervelt. This is Season 1, Episode 2, and today we are looking at the idea that moral and spiritual progress is a synonym for Christian maturity. So we'll look at that and let's dive in. Welcome to the Dear Christianity Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 2, and today we are going to look at the notion that Christian growth and maturity is synonymous with moral and spiritual progress. This is the uh, podcast that is built on three big ideas. Number one, that there is a crisis in contemporary Christianity uh, that's not hyperbole when half of practicing Christians have left in the last 20 years. That's something that history books in the future will chronicle. I believe this is owing to the second big idea of a, about a widespread and fundamental misunderstanding about the essence of the Christian religion. And number three, I believe the remedy is for the church to pursue wisdom. Wisdom is comprised of two constituent parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. As I mentioned, this episode is about one of the aspects of the misunderstanding, the presumption that moral progress is equivalent to Christian growth and maturity. And I want to begin with a parable of sorts. It was written by, or to be precise, it was modified and popularized by the late Anthony Flew, philosopher for many, many decades, was the most famous or one of the most famous atheists in the world, taught at four British universities, including Oxford, published more than three dozen works uh, on atheism. And at 81 years old, he changed his mind. And he, he believed in the, the theistic God. He became effectively a deist. Deists believed that a, uh, a God created the universe and left it to spin on its own. In other words, there's no God that is governing the universe in real time any longer. And he, the parable that he popularized is called the parable of the invisible gardener. And as the parable goes, two explorers are out in the middle of the wilderness and they're exploring. They come to a wide open patch that in the center of it has a beautifully, perfectly manicured garden. And one of the explorers says how extraordinary this is that anyone would come out here, set up this garden, and tend to it somehow, despite the fact that it's very, very remote. And the other one says he must be out of his mind. And so they decide that they can't continue along in their journey without settling the matter. So they set up a uh, camp. And they take turns sleeping. And after three nights, skeptic says to the believer, what do you have to say for yourself? And the, and the other explorer says, well, no, I still think that there's an explorer, but you just can't see him. He's invisible. So they, uh, the parable goes, they jerry-rig an electric fence and they bring in bloodhounds. And three days later, nothing, there's no sighting or no evidence Um that the dogs or the fence had any effect, still no gardener. Skeptic says, what gives? The other explorer says, no, I still think that there's a um, this invisible gardener, but the gardener has no tactile capacities that would be bothered at all by the fence and has no aromatic essence or qualities that would alert the bloodhounds. And the 
the skeptic explorer says, but I, I'm just wondering what remains of your initial assertion about the real existence of this gardener. In other words, I wonder what the difference is between this invisible, elusive, non-tactile, non-aromatic gardener and a gardener that exists purely in your own mind. And if that's the case, what's the difference between that gardener and no gardener at all? I use this illustration because I think it's a powerful example of what it means to hold on to an idea that could be utterly groundless. I have a dear friend who for a time sat on a committee and interviewed candidates for ordination in his denomination. And during one particular interview, he read a section of the denomination's doctrinal statement about the nature of Christian growth and maturity. He read them the following, quote, Christians having a new heart and a new spirit created in them are further sanctified, meaning made holy, really and personally by God's word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and Christians are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. I'll include a link and a reference in the show notes. In plain English, over time and through obedience with the Bible and the Holy Spirit, we progressively become holy. We become less able to have sinful or betraying thoughts and more able to be holy so that we can become more presentable to God in the end. He asked the candidate whether he knew of anyone for whom that was their experience. Not only was the answer no, the question itself had never even occurred to him. It never occurred to him whether, whether that doctrine was attached to anything real or observable, let alone whether it was biblical and logical. Here's a handful of questions that I want to set down for your consideration. I will also include these in the show notes, but think about the following. Is moral progress what God asks and requires of Christians? If it was, would the church look like it does today? Would this many persons be put off or put out by Christians and Christianity? Shouldn't it be reasonable to assume that the church would look better today than it did last year if this progressive view of moral and spiritual improvement were, were true and biblical? achievable, observable? Shouldn't it be beyond reasonable that the church would look better than it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Here's a question. Do I see evidence in my own life that I'm less able to have betraying thoughts and more permanently prone to only have holy thoughts? If I would perpetually be improving morally, spiritually, what would this do to my need for God and Christ and the gospel? What can we learn from the fact that the only persons Jesus chastised were moralists, not evildoers of any kind, moralists, Pharisees, 
Paul railed on the Judaizers. Paul's letter to the Galatian church, a scalding letter. Um, have we, has anyone, have you ever heard of anyone or have you yourself ever read this letter and wonder if it could be instructional, if it could be a, an emblem or a portrait of, of the contemporary church? He says they'd been bewitched. And then he says, having begun with the Spirit, and also meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal through your own efforts, the goal of righteousness? Basically saying, the false teachers have come in to spy on your churches and make sure you're not preaching about freedom in Christ, that you're continuing to faithfully preach the law. You guys have fallen for it. Who has bewitched you? Have we ever wondered whether this, in fact, could be what we're seeing today in contemporary Christianity? In Jesus's public ministry, uh, very early on, he, he, he went away from the crowds and his disciples came to him. And he spoke to them in what has become known uh, famously as the Sermon on the Mount. Um, they, it includes the Beatitudes. Uh, it includes Jesus's claim that he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's another question. What does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law? Is that attached to you are no longer under law, but under grace? I believe it is. What do you think? He goes, he, he makes the case that anger and, and lust are equivalent to murder and adultery, that they offend the law, the commandments, inner thoughts. And then he teaches them about turning the other cheek and loving their enemies. In the Beatitudes, it starts out, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are spiritually poor, those who concede that they lack the resources of themselves to get themselves to righteousness. He's not talking about um, economic poverty. He's talking about uh, it's talking about spiritual poverty, um, and the reason we know this is 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 four beatitudes later. For years, when I would read the Beatitudes, I, I didn't fully grasp it, and I thought that he's making several references to several different disparate types of persons, the poor, those who mourn, people that are meek, but it's not, this, it's not that at all. This is a sustained argument that he's making. Blessed are the spiritually poor, uh, for theirs is the kingdom. He goes, the next one is, blessed are those who mourn their spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who, um, who mourn their inability to think and act according to righteousness. He didn't change the subject to start talking about mourners. And he says that those who mourn this condition, they will be comforted. 
Blessed are those who act in a manner that is genuine and consistent with their spiritual poverty and their mourning. In other words, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who, uh, in their dealings with other people throughout each day, uh, who act with humility. In other words, blessed are those who don't wear a facade that they still actually possess the resources to be righteous. They will inherit the earth. Now, he has said, blessed are the poor in spirit who mourn this condition and who act consistent with this. All of these are necessary preconditions for hungering and thirsting after righteousness, the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after God's righteousness. How do we know it's God's? Because no one hungers and thirsts after something that's already in them, but something that they need, that they lack, and that's outside of them. This is actually also how we know that blessed are those, um, blessed are the poor, the spirit, the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who hunger and thirst after God's righteousness, if they mourn this condition and if it translates into meekness before others. For they shall be satisfied. And then he goes on to talk about blessed are the merciful, those who are ready to forgive, they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, um, who see themselves soberly and honestly. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker, and blessed are those who are persecuted uh, for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom. If the, if the presumption of moral and spiritual improvement is the product of Christian maturity, is part of the widespread and fundamental misunderstanding, what's the answer? If this misunderstanding is is part of the problem in the crisis of the contemporary church. What's the answer? I have said before, I'll say it again many times, I believe it's that the church should pursue wisdom. It has been said, and I happen to agree, that the sum, S-U-M, of all the wisdom there is to be had is comprised of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of self, that neither can be had without having the other both lend um, clarity to the other. In other words, we know God, who God really is, if we can see ourselves uh, for who we actually are, uh, and vice versa. My favorite passage for most of my Christian life is in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. To say that it's my favorite is to say that when I read it, I see myself in it every single time. And it's a reflection, I believe, the reason it's relevant here, um, of this idea of wisdom in being clarity on uh, our true self and God's true self. And here's what Paul says in this letter. Paul, the, the person who persecuted Christians, then was converted on the road to Damascus. And what and he wrote more than half of the New Testament part of our Bible. He says in this letter, 
in this chapter of this letter, when, when I look at the perfection of God, when I consider the perfection of God, rendered, for instance, in the Ten Commandments, and when I compare my heart to God's perfection, I see a wide disparity. The law is spiritual, and I am unspiritual. To say that the law is spiritual means they're not just words and requirements. They are written on our heart, and when our heart encounters the law, uh, we hear that. It's loud uh, in our inner being. Uh, I love that Martin Luther when he talks about how we would, we can know the difference between the law and the gospel, he says it's it's in how we hear them, how our heart hears them. the The law is loud; it's disquieting, disturbing, unsettling. And the gospel is sweet and soft and sublime. Paul says, "I am not able to be righteous. I'm just like the who Jesus referred to in the first beatitude. I am spiritually poor." What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, those are the things I keep on doing. And I realize that there's a, there's a war going on inside of me. The old person, the new person. The old man, the new man. The, the, the flesh and the spirit. All of this makes me realize that I need to be rescued rhetorically, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. And then the beginning of chapter 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is my life passage. It's my day-to-day experience. It's it's another way of saying so I, what I shared with you last time Uh, that my favorite hymn in all the world is I Need Thee Every Hour by Annie Hawks. Now, to be clear, what I'm not saying is that we don't grow or mature or change. I'm simply saying that it's, it's counterproductive to think of this as moral progress, spiritual progress. Um, It's not just inaccurate to think of Christian growth as moral spiritual progress. It's counterproductive to deepening faith. It's counterproductive in that it, it unknowingly causes us to focus on ourselves rather than God and others in the greatest two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. But wisdom, knowledge of God, knowledge of self, makes us more fully human. It allows us to see others as the same or even higher than us. Like the important passage in in Philippians chapter 2, each of you, Paul says, should have the same mind that Christ had, who although he was God, it didn't come over as, it didn't play out in his dealings with others that equality with God was a thing that could be grasped but he made himself a servant. Wisdom grows in us faith, hope, and love. I'll close with a prayer also from the Apostle Paul in his his letter to the Ephesian church. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Amen. Bless you. I look forward to seeing you next time right here. Thanks so much for stopping by. I'm Dale Westervelt. This is the Dear Christianity Podcast. Please check us out at dearchristianity.net. That is .net. And feel free to just subscribe to our newsletter uh, from the website. Thanks so much for stopping by. We will see you next time at the Dear Christianity Podcast. Podcast.